with James McPherson. Now, James is a former News Limited journalist, but our audiences will, of course, know him as a regular Good Source contributor and guest. And I know James because he is my arch nemesis on The Spectator Flat White, where he owns the trending topics pretty much every damn day. James, welcome to Curtain Call. Thanks, Elliot. It's nice to be talking to you. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, look, I didn't really know much about your history until I looked you up last night. Uh, so what got you into journalism in the first place? And then what made you leave journalism to go into this whole church saga in South Africa and lead all these big churches? I, I only ever wanted to do two things in life, be a preacher and a journalist. And I've done them both, so I feel like I've peaked early and I'm not sure what to do with the rest of my life. Um, my dad was a preacher, so I'm one of those people who started going to church nine months before I was born. And from the age of five, I distinctly remember at age five knowing I wanted to be a preacher and lead a church. And I never deviated from that, but in about year nine or ten of school, I just took a real interest in current affairs and politics and I would spend most of lunchtime in the library reading the newspaper. I didn't read any other books, but I always read the newspaper. And so I just drifted into journalism, always knowing I would end up being a church. But I put it off for as long as I possibly could, which I think is good advice. Um, yeah, so um, about year nine or year ten, I decided I wanted to uh, do journalism. And so when I left school, I got a cadetship with Career Mail and did that for a number of years and loved it. But I just got to a point where even though I was um, being relatively successful in media, uh, I just really felt like I was reporting what other people were doing and I wanted to do something myself to make a difference in the world. So I resigned from the newspaper and went to Bible college. When uh, you went to Bible college, did you completely leave your uh, journalistic stuff behind and take a whole new career path? Was it sort of like a clean break? For the Sunday Mail part-time and... And then did some freelance work to pay bills, to be honest, while I was at Bible College. And I never lost my passion for media. Uh, and so how did you end up in South Africa? I mean, that seems to be quite a step from going to being an Australian journalist to um, moving to a different country and, and preaching over there. How did that happen? Well, I didn't move to South Africa. I was leading a church in Queensland that had a number of sites in different cities. And then a, a, a friend was preaching at a large church in South Africa where the pastor was looking to retire but had no one to hand the church over to. And he randomly thought of two Ethiopian children who were adopted as babies. So I've always had a passion for Africa and to do something in Africa. So he rang and said, there's a church in East London. They own an entire city block in East London, debt-free. Would you like it? And I'm thinking England. So I'm thinking an entire city block in East London, debt-free, a massive auditorium, 
yes. Um, and then he informed me it was in South Africa, which wasn't quite as, um, you know, amazing. I mean, it's basically the same thing, right? I mean, South Africa, the, London, I mean, you know. Very, very similar, yeah. So, so I would fly to South Africa four or five times a year uh, to preach and input into team and, and so forth. Yeah, well, uh, we're actually, well, I'm particularly interested in uh, South Africa and what it was like for you down there because they're going through their own sort of cultural and social upheaval, a bit like we are. What was the, what was it like teaching Christianity down in South Africa as compared to, say, the environment in Australia toward religion? Um, South Africa was an overtly Christian country, so it was very easy and there was a natural respect for the church and for ministers. However, I think that had just started to shift a little bit because Christianity was starting to be spoken of as a um, colonial force, as an instrument for um, uh, oppression of black people. Uh, so the ground was starting to shift. Um, so it was an interesting time for sure. Africa is rife with socialism and also Marxism, depending upon where you go, and they they try and remove religion uh, in every place around the world, not just in the West. And so I would have assumed that Africa would have a similar problem starting up there as the Marxists move through and regimes try and adopt that type of politics. But also South Africa, we all know, has got problems with race relations right now and it's getting worse. I had a friend who had to leave Africa. She married a South African and they came back to Australia to have their child because they were worried. Right. Um, it's hard to tell, though, where race relations are worse in South Africa or in the Marxist-driven West, we've got, you know, America where people are being killed and protests on the streets and riots every other day. You know, is America worse or is South Africa worse at the moment? Gee, that's a difficult question. Uh, they're both bad. I, I certainly know for, for preachers in South Africa, you've got to be very careful what you say um, and, you know, to, to even get involved in the race discussion you're, you're walking where angels fear to tread um, because comments get taken out of context, then they get broadcast on social media, and the next thing you know, you're a racist and you're pretty much cancelled. A friend of mine who's got a large church in South Africa made some very innocuous comments, and uh, he simply said that, um, you know, uh, white people need to learn from black people because there's a lot black people can teach us. And there's a lot that white people can teach black people. Well, they, they took that last comment. There's a lot that white people can teach black people. They took that comment, broadcasted everywhere, and the next thing you know, um, he almost lost his church. So it's fraught everywhere. Yeah, well, I suspect in South Africa the dangers are more real than in America, but America makes more noise about it because of the way the activist movement, they're all about shrieking. But uh, the real danger is when you get Marxism in your actual government, and that's when you've got problems. I went back and had a look through when you started writing again, because you've obviously come back to journalism. Mm. And now you're a, a writer, you write continuously. I don't know how you do it. So I went back and had a look at your first publication on The Spectator in uh, April 2020, and it was titled The Lexicon of Lockdown A Guide to New Corona Speak. I don't know if you remember this one. Um, and the article humorously translates uh, the new language of the pandemic. And just for our readers who might not have seen it, the, uh, some examples are things like an airline, a company that owns a lot of planes which don't fly anywhere, or panic buying, uh, a strategy people use to stay calm when they have no idea why they're panicking, and my personal favourite, Patient Zero, that one guy who had to eat a bat, which is 
great. Um, but in all seriousness, when you examine the language of the pandemic, we are flirting dangerously close to uh, propaganda, where words are banned and the people who uttered them are also banned. And truth is now being decided by basically foreign corporations. Um, and encouraged by the government, I must say, even our conservative government isn't really doing much about it. Do you think that politicians are enjoying the power and the attention that the COVID crisis has brought them? Well, if you're a state premier, it's a wonderful time to be alive because I didn't even know who the premier of Western Australia was or the premier of South Australia was before COVID, but now they are running the country. Uh, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, um, I'm not sure exactly what he's doing, but it certainly seems like Daniel Andrews and Anastasia Palaget and uh, Mark McGowan, they're the ones running the country. They're determining who comes into the country, who leaves, it seems. Uh, they're determining when you can and can't go to the shops. Uh, state premiers get to have a uh, primetime media conference or daily if they want where they can advise you how far you can travel from your home. So, yes, I think our state premier certainly should be enjoying this season when their star has risen and uh, they suddenly have this incredible power that they never had before and that we never knew that they were able to have. Well, usually politicians rise to fame during a, a war or a conflict in which they are called upon to make decisions and lead a country through a crisis they probably don't even want to be involved in. I mean, if you read the letters and the correspondence, people like Churchill during the last war, they didn't even like their job, but they had to do it. And that it brought them fame, but it was almost a reluctant sort of fame, really, when it got down to it, you know, they were having a rough time. But, but this type of pandemic, it's like the attention of a war, but they are only really hurting their own citizens while they get to get fame themselves. Do you think that's sort of a fair, uh, it's like a pseudo war so that they can run out in front of the cameras. It's a great analogy. And whereas you don't want to be leading the country when there's a war because the stakes are so high, um, here we have, you know, one person sneezes and you get to make drastic decisions and they're being rewarded at the polls. Uh, incumbents are being re-elected because in a time of crisis, people don't want change, they want stability. So it seems to be in the interests of politicians to continue the crisis because they've got nothing to lose. Well, I mean, some of it's my generation's fault and some of it's your generation's fault because uh, we haven't really gone to war. We haven't lived through, like, our grandparents' generation or our parents' generation. They knew what the real risk was and what real problems looked like, especially our great-grandparents who came to a country with absolutely nothing and had to make a life of it. And so it's almost like we got bored of being peaceful in any kind of small problem is now being talked up into the crisis of our age. But I tell you what, if China moves south, we'll know what a real problem looks like. Exactly. You know, the other interesting thing about this is I feel a little bit like state premiers have been practising for COVID for the past five or six years with weather events. Have you noticed that whenever there's a weather event, you get the state premier and they give a running commentary on, you know, the, the what uh, category the cyclone is and and people should, you know, stock up on water. And state premiers sort of have been giving these press conferences regarding whether it's fires or floods or, or cyclones in North Queensland, which is an odd kind of thing for the state premier to do, to get up and get... Essentially, they've been giving weather reports for the last five years. COVID really has given them the ultimate opportunity to uh, hold their state's hand uh, as together we walk through a terrible crisis that requires them 
to uh, you know lead us every step of the way. It's it, it's something that's been coming for a while, and uh, they seem to be very much enjoying it. I mean, we don't have our weather conferences on a day like today. You're in Sydney. I'm in Sydney. It is a beautiful day outside, and I haven't heard anyone talk about the climate crisis today, nor yesterday, which was also a beautiful day. Uh, but living on a farm where I live most of the time, we never get uh, updates on the real cataclysms. There's no warning saying, hey, by the way, there's a massive flood coming. We always get the warnings when there's a little bit of rain, just a, a normal amount of rain. It's only the ants moving their entire house up into our top level that go, maybe we've got a problem coming. The weather reports themselves and the politicians that surround them are nothing but noise and rubbish. But you touch on a great point, which is like COVID is like the climate change saga, but an upscaled version of it where politicians haven't just banked their own reputations and their political campaigns and our taxpayer public money on a notion and a propaganda campaign. They've actually, with COVID, destroyed millions of lives and thousands of private businesses and generations worth of work. So if they ever had to admit that they maybe talked it up or made a mistake, they'd be sued. And I think rightly so, because they broke the constitution. Do you think that in years to come, there's going to be more scrutiny over what damage the politicians really did do and if it was valid or not? Look, I think there will be scrutiny from certain quarters, but I wouldn't expect any real scrutiny from anyone who's got any authority or power to do anything about it. You're quite right. I think you can understand initially when this first thing happened, the caution and the safety first approach. But then as more information came to light, um, there was no reason for politicians to continue the drastic response, but they doubled down because they didn't want to admit any liability or any fault. And now we're in a position where it would be impossible for any politician to admit any fault because so much damage has been done. So I, I think there'll be scrutiny, but I don't think there'll be scrutiny by anybody who's in a position to do anything about it because the cost would simply be too high. I'm rather hoping that some of these court cases go through and the governments do get sued because uh, people are like, oh, but it's public money they're getting sued for. But if politicians don't have any repercussions for terrible policy that endanger people and their lives and their property, then they'll keep on doing it. So in this case, I think it'd be safer for the future of Australia if politicians were held to account legally for what they have done. Otherwise, what stops them from the next cough that comes around the planet doing the exact same thing and drawing whatever manages to escape this pandemic? So um, I really do hope they get some legal repercussions. Well, um, but we'll see. I think you're right. I, I think it won't be a real commission. It'll be private people who sue them and maybe some of the big corporations who get there. Um, but I often give you a hard time uh, about being uh, clickbait with your headlines. And uh, it's terribly unfair of me because you actually provide a lot of great commentary. You write a lot of detailed, in-depth articles. But in my defence, um, I thought I'd dig up some of your best clickbait titles to uh, show that I'm not making it up. Okay. So here are some of your great ones and see if you agree with me. Uh, the Great Racist Cheese Conspiracy of 1920 Uncovered at Last and your sequel follow-up, which was Killer of Coon Brand Takes Aim at White Milk. I thought those two were pretty great. Uh, the white man made me bash my wife. Uh, foreign dude crowned Miss New Zealand. And Cricket Australia talks balls. That was quite clever. Uh, and the Greens, if you don't go commando, a child will die in Africa. Now, I had to exclude a lot of them because if they were just actual factual titles, then they weren't allowed to be included in this sort of little competition. And they include things like black women's hiking group find, uh, fights exclusion by excluding whites and men. 
Um, so how hard is it to write satirical headlines in the woke world of 2020 and 2021? Look, I hate to burst your bubble, Ellie, but I don't write any of the headlines, so you're giving me credit for stuff that I've not done. Someone else writes the headlines. I'm sure you give some to the – I know he rewrites some of mine unless I tell him strictly not to, but I'm sure you come up with some of them. <laughs> I genuinely don't. I actually don't write any of the headlines. I'm really bad with headlines. Um, I, I'm not that pithy. Really? I'm really pedantic. Yeah, I, sometimes I'll be like, I'll send it to the editor, like, you have to keep the title or you can't have peace. But uh, you can tell the ones that I've written as titles are the ones that I haven't because they're totally different types of headlines. Uh, but uh, interesting you don't write the titles, but how hard is it to write general satire then in the world of uh, work? Well, it's difficult to write satire because I've written a few satirical pieces and they've been taken literally. Um, I, I wrote a satirical piece about a just an imaginary press conference of Daniel Andrews that I just imagined in my mind, and a quote from it went viral as if it was the real thing, and everybody believed it, and it even got ABC fact-checked. Um, and it was quite, if you read the whole piece, it was a complete piss-take. But, um, you know, what's the old adage? Truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, so it, it's hard to... Yeah, well, I got um, conservatives were yelling at me because I wrote an article saying that your white shirt, your business shirt, oppresses me. Now, I thought that was, it was written on April 1st, and I thought that was plainly an, a, an attempt at humour rather than a serious piece. But people are so uh, willing to accept lunacy at the moment, they can't even write satire without people thinking you're serious. But a lot of what, like, there aren't many conservatives out there writing fun stuff, like actually giving commentary that's entertaining, even on real crazy events. Why did you decide to sort of write uh, more content and be entertaining? Is it to sort of try and bring people to, to their attention to enjoy reading again? Or why did you take that approach? I think the best way to dismantle a bad idea is to mock it. Because there's nothing worse than, than being laughed at. I mean, disagree with me, but don't laugh at me. Because once you laugh at me, I can bring more power. It's, it's like the old fable of the, the emperor who had no clothes and he's parading down the street naked and it's fine until a young child can't cope anymore and starts giggling. And then once one person starts laughing, then everyone starts laughing and, and the idea is completely demolished. So I think as a conservative, we need to, uh, to lighten up a little bit. And, and it is funny. It's what's happening, but it's funny. And I think when you poke fun at it, you, you dismantle it and you take away its authority. I think it's a great tool for um, exposing the stupidity of the left. Well, let, well let's not forget that uh, collectivists in general, whether they be Marxists or socialists or communists or any of that flavour, they're a bit immature with their politics. And because their politics is based on quite fragile ideas, they're like toddlers. If you laugh at them, they freak out and have tantrums. It's quite entertaining. And I'm sure that's why they're trying to ban comedy and humour in general and, you know, mm. laughing at something or making fun of it's now an offence. It's offensive. You can be dragged for the ATC and, uh, and have the right act read to you. Uh, is it, uh, now that we've lost our ability to laugh at politics and politicians, do you think that's doing some danger toward driving us towards authoritarian-style politics because we can't mock it anymore? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Laughter and humour and, and making fun of things is a very real part of being human. And, and do you know the most criticism I get is from Christian people 
who they say, we agree with what you say, but we don't like the way you say it. It's unkind because you laugh at laughing at ideas, not at people. But one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Psalm 2, it says that God sits in the heaven and he laughs against him. And that changed my thinking to think even God thinks that human rebellion, if you will, is, is funny. And it is kind of funny because it's like someone who's spitting into the wind. It's, it's tragic, but it's funny because it's, it, it's so insane. And uh, if you can't laugh, be human and, and there's, you lack a capacity to then process your thought. And I think we've, we've been robbed of something very human by being banned from laughing or, or making fun or taking the piss out of anything. And, um, and it, it certainly has made for a very somber, very serious, very easily offended culture that is not helpful to anybody. Well, uh, correct me if you disagree with me on this, but I think humour plays two major roles in society. The first is that it's a social construct where our instinct to laugh at the ridiculous or the absurd outside the social norm is a way of protecting the social norms of that civilization. So if someone, if a you know eight foot dude rocks up in fishnets and a mini red, you know, red paint and miniskirt and high heels, people will generally laugh because we're like, that's probably not a great idea for all of us to go and do that. It's a natural reaction to protect a norm of society. Uh, and the other thing that humor does is it's a coping mechanism for grief. And so in the worst of our human experience, like the wars and the plagues and that's when you start to see black humour and, and comedy taking very dark topics and laughing at them because it helps to allow humans to survive terrible things. And so the idea that humour would be robbed from humanity is quite a serious issue and the left have no right to do it and we should not be allowing governments to institutionalise uh, humour as being a crime if it offends somebody. No, you're absolutely spot on. That's exactly how things work and that's why we're all the poorer for the inability now to laugh. Let's talk about the, uh, oh, actually, before we go there, mm. um, talking about that finishing from satire topic, I don't know about you, but Daisy and I were talking about how easy it is to get caught out by fake stories these days because everything is so ridiculous that you have to triple check everything. Have you nearly been caught out or been caught out by a, uh, a fictional story of the work? There was one recently, and I'm trying to remember what it was, that... The Murdoch Press ran. Do you remember? It was a couple of weeks ago. Um, oh, yeah. oh, yes, it was about fairy, it was fairy bread. They got yeah. um, so they said they were going to have a campaign to get rid of fairy bread. And it was like it was after the Golden Gate time campaign, and so people were quite prepared to accept that they might be attacking fairy bread. Yeah, but this is the problem with satire that you alluded to earlier that it's entirely believable. So when I saw it in the paper, I thought, well, why not? You've banned gay times, you might as well ban fairy bread. And then when I found out it was fake, I thought, oh, well, there you go. Who cares? But uh, the point is I shrugged my shoulders when I told us when I heard it was fake because these days who would know anything is possible and nothing surprises anymore, which, which is a real indictment on where we are as a, as a culture, that nothing would surprise anymore. That, that's not a good thing. That's a terrible thing. Yes, it means that politicians can get away with the more ridiculous and absurd than uh, they could before because people are willing to accept craziness without complaint. Uh, although I did love how people went into an absolute outrage, the idea of getting rid of fairy bread and gay times. That uh, gave the left a bit of a shock that uh, even their own people were like, no, no, you can't, you can't have those cultural things. Uh, but 
let's talk about the free press because the ABC love to declare themselves as being the free press despite the fact they're paid for by the government. Um, and they are not the bastion of freedom. They are a very small, closed-minded group of individuals who can only repeat the lines that their politicians and business associates approve of. And they actively seek to silence not only businesses that compete with them in the market, but individuals who disagree with their narrative. And so they, if anything, for free press, the ABC are not. Now, they encourage the censorship of their peers. Do you think that they are hypocrites or they are genuinely stupid when they think themselves as the free press? Yeah, I, look, the whole charge of hypocrisy is an interesting one because the, the right or conservatives regularly point out the hypocrisy of the left and the left just don't care. Um, so if you called a conservative a hypocrite, a conservative would be, you know, shocked um, and mortified. But if you call a leftist a hypocrite, they don't even blink. Um, so I, I think that the left genuinely believe their own narrative. If you tell yourself something long enough, often enough, eventually that becomes your... I don't think it is hypocrisy. I think they genuinely do believe what they say and they genuinely do believe that they're balanced and unbiased and that they're presenting a, a level playing field. Well, we've got people like Christine Keneally who tried to ban CPAC speakers on grounds of hate speech and he couldn't even enter the country with her political opposition. I mean, if she was in power, she'd be trying to stop people who disagree with her politically from even speaking. Hmm. We've got that, you know, bandana dude, you know, saying that uh, it's a good thing that social media is banning what he calls hate speech, but, you know, who gets to define hate in this sort of world? Um, it's not just the politicians, it's all of the media personalities, it's the celebrities. It seems to be this consensus of censorship going on and there are very few people fighting back against it. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but the conservative and even the centrist and libertarian um, media industry is terrified of letting anybody into its little group because they're worried that if someone says the wrong thing or isn't totally on brand, then they're going to get criticised by the left-wing press. And I don't know how to explain this to them, but the press hate them regardless of what they say and they're going to get shit no matter what they do. And so there's nobody new coming up into the conservative narrative because no one will let anybody in. Does it worry you that not only is the next generation not being allowed to hold views that are contrary to the, to the narrative, but there's nobody, like there's no, there's no other generation coming up to hold the fort for Western values? Yeah, for sure. But Triggs, who was the former Human Rights Commissioner, lamenting the fact that people are still allowed to say what they want uh, around the kitchen table in their own homes. So this idea of suppressing speech we don't like and uh, arbitrating over what can and can't be said is, is not just an argument that's happening in the media, but even our own Human Rights Commissioner. The Human Rights Commissioner is, uh, you know, wistfully thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could control what people say around the dinner table in their own homes? That's, that's how insidious and ingrained this desire to suppress speech has become. So it, it's a much bigger problem than simply the ABC or the media. Even those who are appointed to guard our human rights uh, define human rights as being what they say uh, rather than what we would be allowed to say even in our own homes. It's more insidious than that. and It's this idea that everything that you speak and think has to be an approved train of thought by the state. That's a very, very collectivist view. And uh, there's no 
you know, when humans are born, they're born with the right to their own thoughts and their own speech. Now, there's no demand on that speech that it be nice, that we always like each other. We're allowed to love, we're allowed to hate, we're allowed to have our own opinion. Um, and the idea that the state is allowed to weigh in on what we think and we feel is horrific. And I'm surprised that the Human Rights Commission in Australia isn't checking themselves for intervening with the human rights of their citizens by their own actions. But of course, the Human Rights Commission internationally, uh, it's led by China, which is one of the worst defenders of human rights in the world. It's got people like Somalia sitting on the board. <laughs> And they and they wrote a whole they wrote a whole separate human rights charter for the Islamic nations because of course they don't share the human rights of most of the rest of the world and so it seems to me that they act as a political organisation rather than uh, uh, what they were set up to which was to protect the inherent rights of all human beings but we can't agree on what those are across the globe which is why we live in countries rather than a global uh, leadership. Yeah, it reminds me when Israel Folau was having his issues. Um, one of the human rights commissioners offered to counsel Israel as to how he might better share his faith. And, and the media never picked up on this. And I thought it was one of the most outrageous parts of the whole draft debacle that the Human Rights Commission offer their help to uh, counsel Israel as to how he could better share his faith and his beliefs. Who do the Human Rights Commission think they are? that uh, they can um, tell someone how they ought to share their most deep feelings about life and, and purpose and meaning. Um, so this, uh, the, the problem with the Human Rights Commission is that it is an impediment to human rights, not a help to human rights. You've got to ask your question why we need a Human Rights Commission in Australia in the first place. Until recently, we're probably the most free country on earth um, so you have to wonder at the motivation people uh, continually insist we need a, a human rights commission for this and for this and for this. Um, are they really trying to guarantee rights or are they really trying to implement their own agenda under a rights banner? Well, if you listen to the works of uh, Jonathan Sumption, the high court, uh, an old high court judge in the UK, these international bureaucracies are set up to supersede the rights of the state and the rights of sovereignty, and most of them are led by socialists because they're still living their last century dream of a world government where they get to decide above the, like above the individual country rights what the rules are going to be for society. That We shouldn't be part of it. It was an idea that was failed from the beginning, and we did better with our human rights when we were deciding as a nation what was acceptable for Australia. We don't need to reference what we think is acceptable in the Middle East or China or half of Europe or South America, it, which should be our standards and the Australian standards. And, you know, we waste millions and millions of dollars on these people. But that's, that's a whole massive other story to go into the bureaucracy of world governments. But uh, at Curtain Call, what we like to do at the end is ask you a fun question. Okay. Um, and that is, if you could have dinner with anybody, living or dead, who would it be and why? Well... We're sport for choice, aren't we? So uh, I won't go obvious, I'll go obscure. I would love to have dinner with Oscar Wilde. Great choice. And why? Um, you know, I think, I think it was the only novel he ever wrote was A Portrait of Dorian Gray, which uh, just fascinated me. And, and I'm, I'm curious about Oscar Wilde because he was at once an outcast of the church, but you read his writing and the influence of Christianity on his writing and his worldview was quite profound. So I, I think he'd be a fascinating person. 
just to try and understand the way he saw life, religion, himself. And on top of that, um, his one-liners are better than anyone who's ever lived. So he would be highly entertaining, very amusing, and um, and, and I, I think a great laugh. I think it'd be a great, uh, a great evening's dinner, really. But mm. so thank you so much for joining us on Curtain Call and uh, all the best with your writing. And I look forward to your next clickbaity headlines and you're still on the bloody top trends of The Spectator, so I have to do something about that later on. I'm number one, I know, you're number I know. two. Yeah. <laughs> I know, always, the story of my life. But uh, I'll see if I can knock you off next week. All right, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.